tracking with us, you know that uh, we're working off of uh, Paul's words in 1 Timothy 6.6, where Paul says that godliness with contentment is great gain. And so we're looking at uh, Peter, and we're kind of asking the question, how did Peter go from being who he was uh, to that place of contentment in his own life? And so uh, this morning... uh, You might remember that last week we looked at Peter, one of uh, the Lord's best friends, and uh, we saw how he was often in trouble because a lot of times he would say things and he would do things before he'd think about what he was saying and what he was doing. And so it caused him to fail, or I want to say caused him to sin. Uh, Peter said and did things that were offensive uh, to God and uh, went directly against what God was doing. And so we saw, for example, in Matthew chapter 16, uh, this is such an important passage, you know, when Jesus came to Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then in verse 21, Jesus began to explain to the disciples that he must go and suffer and, uh, and die and be killed and then be raised to life. And Peter then, verse 22, takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. And it's such a contrast with Peter, right? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And a couple of verses later, he's going to rebuke Jesus. Never, Lord, he says, it's never going to happen to you. You're not going to die. And uh, verse 23, Jesus turned and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then we saw that when we uh, give Peter a little time to grow up and mature, that by the time he writes 1 Peter, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, he says, I realize now that behind every decision anybody makes is a motive of either to desire to please man or a desire to please God. Behind every decision we make. And Peter realized that. You know, if he'd only known that up front, but it took time and it took God's grace for him to understand that behind every decision is either our own human desires or God's desires for our life. And Peter learned this from his failures, from his sins, because of the grace of God. So if you take your Bible, uh, Luke chapter 22, and the little video clip alluded to this scene. In um, Luke chapter 22 and verse 31, we have again another one of these you know, situations that I think gives us a glimpse into Peter, and we'll see how he changes. Uh, In verse 31, uh, Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. And I always think, why didn't the Lord just say no? (laughs) You know, why didn't when Satan asked to sift him like wheat, why didn't he just say no? We're in the men's uh, Bible study on Thursday mornings, we're studying the book of Job. And uh, Satan came, you know, into the presence of God to challenge God's blessings on Job. And, uh, you know, uh, instead of God just saying, well, just leave him alone, uh, God allows Satan to, you know, um, sift him like wheat. And uh, so Jesus says, Satan wants to sift you, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith won't fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers, because your brothers are going to fail too. And uh, you're going to need to know how to make that work. And so... Uh, But Peter replies, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison. I'm ready to go to death with you, he says, right, in verse 33. And Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny three times that you even know me. So now look at verse 54 in Luke chapter 22, where we see this unfold. 
Then seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. And Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with Jesus. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him. He's a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word of the Lord had spoken to him. And before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And Peter went outside and he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. He had let the Lord down. Uh, You ever have an opportunity to stand up for the Lord and not take it? Anybody ever ask you about why you do something you do and you know it's because the Lord lives in your life, but you never said so? You know, if you go to the uh, uh, First Peter, and again, I just want to, you know, kind of show. In First Peter chapter 4, by the time Peter writes, listen to him talking. Now, think of this incident that happened in his life where he denies even knowing Jesus three times in a row. Goes out and weeps bitterly. Uh, by First Peter chapter 4, verse 12, listen to what he's, he's saying. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial that you're suffering. As though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. Where'd that come from, Peter? If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed for the spirit of the glory of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or some kind of criminal or even a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. But praise God that you bear the name. <laughs> what happened to Peter? How did Peter go from you know, being afraid to even mention that Jesus was his friend to saying, wow, this is a badge. When somebody accuses you of being a Christian or you know, uh, attacks you in some way or you have an opportunity to stand up for Christ and you're mocked for it. This is a great thing. Uh, how did Peter change? Uh, If you turn to Acts chapter 10, there's another kind of incident in Acts chapter 10. And uh, again, this is on the other side of, you know, Jesus dying on the cross and and, and, uh, rising. But, you know, uh, this is uh, for the first uh, 10 chapters of the book of Acts. Peter is prominent and he's, you know, preaching, but it's primarily to Jewish people. And now God is going to push him out of that envelope and tell him that the gospel is for all people. It's for Gentile people as well. And uh, so... He's at Caesarea, and there was a man named Cornelius, I'm reading from verse 1, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all of his family were devout and God-fearing, and he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who was also called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner. 
Remember I told you Simon is a pretty popular name? Here's Simon the Tanner, uh, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants, and he told them everything that had happened, and he sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, they were on their journey, going to Joppa, approaching the city. Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. The way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Okay. He was hungry. Um, Now, verse 14, how does Peter respond? Surely not, Lord. Surely not. No. Surely not. I'm not going to do that, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. I'm a Jew. I don't do that. It's part of my religion. Look at this, verse 14. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was, stopped at the gate, called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up, go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them. I have sent them. Peter went down, said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied. They told the story and so forth. They take them to Cornelius' house and, and so on and so forth. I'm just saying three times, Peter says, surely not, Lord. No way, Lord. I'm not going to do it, Lord. It's an oxymoron, Right? You don't call somebody your Lord and then argue with them and debate with them and not listen to them and refuse them and so on and so forth. But have you ever said no to God because of your tradition? Have you ever said no to something God's asking you to do simply because it's not the way you were raised? Just didn't fit with kind of what you thought was proper and important, like Peter thinking that, you know, there's no way I should, you know, eat this unclean food that has been prescribed by my religion. Is God able to do a new thing in our lives and push us out of our envelopes? You know, Uh, go to Galatians. Here's one other incident Uh, in Galatians chapter two and verse 11. Peter goes to Antioch. Uh, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, the Apostle Paul says. (laughs) Wherever Peter goes, you know, he's got one of these deals going on. When Peter came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, his old Jewish friends. Wouldn't approve of this, even though the gospel and his understanding of the gospel and God's grace and the change that happened on this side of Jesus, Peter was thoroughly convinced. But when the Jews came, he backed off, living out the implications, the pure implications of the gospel. Uh, Verse 13, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. 
When I saw, this is Paul talking now, right? When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of all of them, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul's like in the front of all of his Jewish friends, like, you know, bringing them out and uh, forcing them to kind of come clean. But this is Peter. This is Peter, right? This is kind of like who he is. And uh, it occurs to me, again, have you ever been, you know, intimidated by other people to not live your testimony, to not live the implications of the gospel? Uh, because other people are around and they're going to have something to say uh, and, and so on and so forth. And so if you just take these four incidents, first of all, you know, Peter resists the whole idea of the cross. He's saying to the Lord, you're not going to die. Nobody needs that. You know, we need you alive. We need you to do miracles. We need you to do, you know, teaching and so forth. We don't need you to die on a cross. And, and, and so the first thing, you know, we see Peter is like three times then Peter says when Jesus is on his way to the cross and he could use a friend, three times Peter says, I don't even know him. I'm not his friend. I'm disassociating myself with him. As Jesus is on the way to the cross to be crucified, he's not my friend. And then in John chapter 21, as the little video clip showed us three times, um, the Lord asked Peter, do you love me? Because you're sure not acting like it. Do you really love me? Have you ever made the decision that you're going to love me? You know, have you ever drawn a line in the sand and stepped across it and, and said, you know, I'm going to love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Made like a wedding commitment. I'm going to commit myself to loving you. And so three times um, the Lord asks him, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, of course, you know. But even after all of that, in Acts chapter 10, three times Peter's saying, surely not. Lord, I'm not going to go to those Gentiles. I'm not going to, you know, eat those unclean animals. I'm not going to, you know, associate with unclean people. If I kept reading in, reading in Acts chapter 11, when he finally does get to Cornelius' house, he has to explain how it's not kosher for him to eat with these people. And he has to kind of bring up his tradition and let the people know that he's really, you know, trying to be obedient in the midst of all of this. And then in Galatians, he puts other people before the Lord and before the cross. The sin of hypocrisy. Saying I'm one thing, but doing something else. And I say to myself, you know, when, when we look at Peter and we see those, just those four incidents, and uh, Paul has to yell at him there in, in Galatians, you know. There's this pattern with Peter of failure and restoration. You know, of failure and restoration. Three steps forward, two steps back. At first he's fighting the Lord and sinning, and then he's giving in and growing. And there's a pattern in Peter's life that I think only the cross can enable in order for us to make progress in the pursuit of that contentment that God tells us is available for us. And so... By the time we get to 1 Peter, again, if you keep a finger in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17, Peter is writing, now I think these, these incidents of Peter are very easy to identify with. I think all of us can say, you know what, I, I can relate to Peter on you know, these four different ways that he disassociates himself from the Lord. But I wonder if we realize that those things are sinful. You know, I think we so identify with Peter that we look at him and, and we laugh. And we say, oh, that's just like me. 
and I'm so happy. But if you're a holy God and you're looking at Peter, you're not laughing. You're saying, this is going to cost me to fix that guy. It's going to cost me to make something out of him. He is so lost. He is so far from what I created him to be. This is going to cost me big time in order to compensate for this. And uh, so when we get to 1 Peter, though, listen to how he writes. I'm in verse uh, 17 of chapter 1. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially. Since you call on God who judges us impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. All of a sudden, Peter realizes that, you know, the klutz that he was and the person that God turned him into cost God dearly. In order for Peter to be bought back, you know, I think Peter came to realize that in order for him to be redeemed or to be repurchased or to be ransomed or to be rescued or to be released from his debt that his sin created, cost God dearly. In order for Peter to be saved, it took the precious blood of Christ. I'm here to tell you today, nothing in this world can do that for anybody except the precious blood of Christ, the spotless lamb. All the silver and all the gold in the world cannot do that for you. There is no bribe that you can bring to God and find acceptance. The cross is God paying way more to buy us back than it ever cost him to create us in the first place. And can I tell you, God does not have a plan for anybody outside of the cross. There is no plan B. God does not have a plan for people outside of the precious blood of Jesus. And so what ultimately changed Peter was the power of the cross. He was transformed. His failures were transformed by the precious life, the blood of Jesus uh, spilled for him. You know, the Bible says the message of the cross is to those of us who are being saved, the power of God. The message of the cross is for those of us who are being saved, the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18. So failure and restoration like Peter's and like ours can only be turned around and set straight through the precious sacrifice. Contentment in life can never come in any other way except through the cross, through the precious blood of Christ. But the question becomes then, you know, how prominent of a place does the cross occupy in our lives? How often do we think about the cross except when we're in church? How often outside of church do we really think about the cross? Because it occurs to me that like Peter, at first, we don't think we need the cross. Peter didn't think Jesus should go to the cross. 
He didn't understand, of course, but he didn't think that, the, you know, no way, I'm not going to let you die on the cross. I don't think Peter thought he was that bad. I think people looked at Peter and kind of laughed, you know. I don't think Peter thought that he was so bad that somebody as precious as Christ would have to die to make him right with God. I just don't think Peter ever had that thought in mind, and, and I think perhaps neither do we. As I said, you know, the men's Bible study, we're studying um, the book of Job on Thursday mornings. And, you know, Job, the Bible describes him as a righteous person. And so God allows all this stuff to happen to him. And Job is like screaming out to God and he's building his case and he wants God to answer him and da 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 da. And finally, at the end of the book, God shows up and there's Job and God face to face. And Job is like, hand over his mouth. He's got nothing to say. His idea of God and the reality of God were two different things. And when he came face to face with God, he realized, I got nothing to say. And then God launches into this, you know, where were you when I created the world? Where were you? I own you. And so on and so forth. And there's this whole transformation. And I would say that when we come face to face with the reality of the cross, it ought to have the same effect on us. Do I really need the precious blood of the only begotten Son of God to redeem me? Is there no other way? Am I that bad of a person that the precious blood of the only begotten Son of God, you know, I think we don't like to associate so much with the Jesus who goes to the cross. You know, Jesus the healer, yeah. Uh, Jesus the teacher, great. We love sitting at your feet. Jesus the miracle worker, we pray to you all the time. Jesus the sin bearer, my sin bearer, Jesus, the one who turns into my sin in the face of God and was rejected by his Father in heaven? I don't think we always like to think about or, you know, um, meditate on that Jesus. There, there's an old hymn that we used to sing. Um, and it's, it's called Beneath the Cross of Jesus. And uh, one of the verses in that hymn says, I take, O cross, thy shadow for my abiding place. I'm going to live in the shadow of the cross. I take, O cross, my shadow, thy shadow, for my abiding place. I'm going to go and live in the shadow of the cross. I ask no other sunshine, the Bible says, or that verse says, than the sunshine of your face. And listen, content, contentment, content to let the world go by, to know no gain nor loss, my sinful self, my only shame, and my glory, all the cross. And I think, how many people live their lives in the shadow of the cross? It's kind of annoying, isn't it? It's kind of like, you know, uncomfortable. It kind of like gets in the way of the way I normally like to do life. But I want to suggest a couple of things. I think if we lived in the shadow of the cross, number one, it would slow us down a bit to realize that the precious Son of God had to shed his blood in order to make me right with God. I am that sinful. I might not take my sins all that seriously, but the God of the universe does. 
We might look at Peter and smile because we can identify with him so easily. We say, you know, oh yeah, isn't that funny the way Peter did that? But the God of the universe says, you know, I didn't make Peter to be like that. And in order to get him back, I'm going to have to shed precious blood, the blood of my only begotten son. And I think, you know, how pervasive is our sin? That somebody would have to die, not just somebody, but the only begotten son of God, the blemishless son of the living God, Jesus, on the cross. And without the cross, you know, the Bible says the wages of our sin is death. Without the cross, you and I are in the crosshairs of the judgment of Almighty God. Without the cross, we are facing on the other side of this life the wrath of Almighty God. The wages of sin is death. And, uh, you know, get behind me, Satan, the Lord has to say uh, to Peter. And so we might not be aware of it, but um, death is the consequence of our sin. You know, death is separation. Physical death is your soul separates from your body. That's death. It's separation. Spiritual death is that your spirit is separated from God, who made your spirit to dwell in. And when we come into the world, we're separated from him. Jesus said, nobody will see the kingdom of God unless they are born of the spirit. We come into the world separated from God. And only the cross can make us aware of the penalty that's required by this three times holy God for the sinfulness that marks our lives that's not very different from Peter's. Only the cross confronts us with how serious God takes Peter's offenses and our offenses. Vin Tabor, who used to uh, run our counseling center next door, in one of his books, talks about the power of the cross in our daily living. And it reminds us that sin is a universal problem. Everybody's contaminated by it. Everyone has this problem, but it's also a, a personal problem. You and I have sinned against the holy God. What can we do about it? We can't do anything about it. But God has done something about it. The cross confronts us with the true condition of our lives before God. Uh, you might remember Jesus at one point said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. Just about everybody's aware of the cross. And yet it's only the cross that can remove the penalty of our sins. If you turn to Romans chapter 5, you remember these great uh, words in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. What can you do about your sin before a holy God? You're powerless. You can't do a thing. At just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and shed his blood. And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Christ? For if when we were God's enemies, enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life that he lives now? And again, you know, people who live outside the shadow of the cross are clueless about their true condition. 
It's not until you come face to face with the cross that you, it dawns on you and you're humbled by this reality that apart from Christ's blood, I am forever going to be under the wrath of God for the sinfulness that marks my life. But it's the cross that confronts us with this reality and nothing can do for you what only the cross can. God took the certificate of debt, the Bible says, the bill that you and I run up with God because of our sin, nails it to the cross and marks it paid in full. I take, O cross, thy shadow for my abiding place. I don't ever get too far away from the cross because apart from the cross, I'm clueless as to my uh, true condition. So failure and restoration, sin and forgiveness is part of finding contentment, but it's found only in the shadow of the cross. How do you live a guilt-free life? Can I tell you, it's not by denying our sin. It's not by trying to forget our sinfulness. It's by remembering it and bringing it to the cross. And when we do, what happens to Jesus when we bring our sins to this cross and we embrace that forgiveness and the cleansing and the guiltlessness that is uh, put on us by our faith in Christ is that Christ gets magnified as the object of our worship. You wish Jesus meant more to you. Spend more time at the cross. Take your sins and bring them there and watch him suffer and die. And as he hangs on that cross, let him ask you the question he asked Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? I first loved you on this cross. Do you love me? I think living in the shadow of the cross is also a great help in our fight against sin. Um, suppose you're being tempted in some way, some, something you know that disappoints God, you know? What if you had the courage to take the cross and put it between you and whatever temptation has come in your way? What if in order to, to yield to that temptation, you had to look past the cross, or you had to look around the cross, you know, and here's Jesus between you and whatever temptation... Maybe like Peter, it's other people that force you to be hypocritical when you have an opportunity. Maybe like Peter, you shrink from acknowledging Jesus as your friend, you know. What if you had to look around and pass the cross before you chose your next entertainment? What if you had to look past and around the cross before you spent your next dollar or, um, you know, went on the next wrong website? What if you had the cross between you and your temptations? What if you actually lived in the shadow of the cross? What if you had to look directly at the cross before you said no to an opportunity to witness for Christ? Before you said no to tithing? Before you said surely not, Lord, to reaching out to somebody the Lord's put in your path? What if the cross was there when we were tempted, even as Peter was? In that book, uh, Vin Tabor Um, said sometimes we become so focused on what we've been saved from that we ignore what we've been saved for to live this new life in order that, you know, we might uh, live for Christ. Peter's restoration was accomplished by this question, do you love me? Three times. Put the cross between you and your temptation and let the Lord ask you, do you love me? And then remember what the Lord says. Peter says, of course I love you. Well, then do what I say. Feed my lambs. Uh, 
feed my sheep, speak these words, teach that class, use these gifts, enlist in my service, reach out to other people, etc., etc. Use the gifts that I gave you. Come on. For a Christian to keep on sinning, you have to take the cross and get out of the way. You have to put the cross in some inconspicuous place so that the world looks better and better to us without looking through the cross and acknowledging the reality of how God sees things. And so Peter says, if you're going to call the Father in heaven your Father, look at the precious blood that was shed in order to redeem you. And then um, could I also suggest to you that it's the cross that makes our relationships work? It's in the shadow of the cross that we learn what love is. When you look at the cross and ask yourself, what is love? God says, God is love, the Bible says, right? Well, you look at the cross, you understand, love is always sacrifice. And love is always somebody going first. Without waiting for the other person to do whatever, while we were yet sinful, God goes first. And God sacrifices and then God invites. And if you think about um, relationships, you know, uh, when you live in the shadow of the cross, only after you experience God's love through the cross do you realize that contentment can come in no other way. Since God so loves us, we become freed to love in the same way. The cross can restore broken relationships like nothing else can. How can you be unforgiving when you live in the shadow of the cross? When you realize how much you've offended God and what God has done to love you back and forgive you, how can you hold the next person responsible and not forgive them? How can you maintain a critical spirit when you live in the shadow of the cross? How can you be critical when you live in the shadow of the cross, when you think of what Jesus did for you? How can you be selfish? How can you be prideful? The, the power of the cross melts away the sins that destroy our relationships. When you live in the shadow, the message of the cross is the power of God. Paul says, nothing in life satisfies our souls like Jesus can. This is another, when we live in the vicinity of the cross, I think we clarify to ourselves how it is that God wants to bring contentment into our lives. So often we think that contentment will come when I can add the next thing to my life. If I could just get to this stage, or if I could just get to that income, if I could just have that vacation, if I could just meet the right people, if I could just add something to my life, I could find contentment. But when you come to the cross, you realize that God says, no, contentment is found when this Jesus gets into your life. When the very spirit of Jesus enters your life, there's contentment. That God has put us here in order that we might, that the life of Christ might live in us and that we might be given to continue that which Christ started. When we live in the shadow of the cross, our, our purpose and meaning in life begins to come crystal clear. That the living God would sacrifice himself for what? In order that people might enjoy eternal life. And all of a sudden we have this meaning and purpose that comes into our life. When the spirit of Christ lives within us, uh, no matter what we do, we're about in the world in order that we might invite other people to eternal life in order that we might be bearers of good news, in order that we might spread the gospel. I think that's why the Apostle Paul, because of the life of Christ in him, could get to the place where he would say, you know what? Thank you. Somebody made coffee, right? Somebody's making coffee. <clears throat> 
You know what? The cross, the cross enabled the Apostle Paul to say, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. Because why? This Christ who died on that cross gets inside of us by his spirit and gives us new life. And the life that we live, like the song that we sang, the new song that we learned, is beautiful. It's the life of Christ that's in us that gives life its purpose and its meaning and its contentment. And then, of course, the cross is empty. And it's the cross that assures us of our eternal life. So Paul could say, for me to live is Christ, and what? And to die is gain. Because of what Christ did, I'm looking forward, I'm optimistic about the future that God has prepared for us a place beyond our wildest dreams. Nothing can do this for you except the cross. I take, O cross, thy shadow as my living place. I don't ever get too far away from the cross. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we realize that the cross was all your idea. That your son, even as Peter tells us, was slain before the foundation of the world. You knew it was going to happen. You knew, Heavenly Father, that we would need to be redeemed. You knew that we would choose against you. And we all have. And it is amazing when we look at Peter, it's so easy to laugh at Peter about the things that he did. But from your side of the fence, when we think about Peter and what it cost and how Peter finally realized it was the precious blood of the, of the spotless Lamb of God, that was able to take him from his failures and to create in him a life that pleased you. And we're in the same boat. And we recognize this. And yet, Heavenly Father, it's so easy for us to have a, a crossless Christianity. There's a lot of people who are trying to recreate a Christianity without the cross being in the middle. And so may we, Heavenly Father, just be reminded again of what was accomplished for us on the cross so many years ago. And may it ever be in our sight. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.